jinkies. Oh, what's that gross book made out of skin? It's not a book. It's a tome made out of skin. Ew. What's it say? Behold the collected apocrypha of Stacy Ponder, the writer for Final Girl. And Anthony Hudson, the programmer for Queer Horror. And together they are... Oh my god! Don't read it out loud! Don't read it out loud! Gay Lords of Darkness! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow! 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 Here we are! Wow! Another another fine Wednesday here. Stately Gaylord uh, Manor. Stately Gaylord's Manor, feeling very stately today. Very st- The sun just shines through the stained glass so beautifully. Yeah, it really does. It's very, you know what? It reminds me of an Argento movie. Yes. yes. With all the colors, you know, the colors. The wacky colors in our, our attic full of razor wire where we, <laughs> it just makes yeah. getting our Christmas decorations that much more challenging, but it's fun. Yeah. Well, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, you know what we didn't talk about last time? And I feel like this news was out in the world. Oh, no. But we didn't talk about it. So we might as well talk about it now. Uh, is the fact that they announced two more Halloween movies. Um, yeah. Yeah, they did. They did. We didn't talk about this. You are correct. We didn't talk about it. Uh, I think I tried to block it from my mind. Because when I saw the headline and... Well, it said two more Halloween movies. It didn't just say, hey, girl, listen up. We are doing another one, which you already knew because we posted that picture of Jamie Lee Curtis and Jason Blum getting together and talking. They said we're making two fucking more movies. And now this is a trilogy. Yeah. It did not buy me dinner first. (laughs) It didn't put lipstick on me. There was no lipstick anywhere. Uh... It was just, everything was very dry. And then there was a headline right there in my face. It fucked my eyes. Fucked my eyes without the courtesy of even some spit. Wow. No, I'm cutting this out. (laughs) No, it's too far. It was a little, no. I mean, it was, we could compare it to Brokeback Mountain, maybe. We were, we had okay. eat, eaten a lot of beans, and then, <laughs> fuck, it doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. <laughs> Gas is not a lube. <laughs> Just because I they ate t- those beans. <laughs> they teach you that in science class. They teach you, they say, everybody, flatulence is not a lubricant. So there was the headline. <laughs> I said, please. And Halloween kills. Halloween kills. Halloween kills. What does that mean? And then the sequel, Halloween ends? Halloween ends. What the fuck does, they what have does that to, mean? They have to change those titles. They have to change those titles. Like, right? there's almost, there's almost something like, kind of like, Emmanuel or kind of like James Bond about those titles like uh, but in a in the especially in the franchise of Halloween I mean granted they weren't all gems no but a title like The Curse of Michael Myers 
or right. Halloween two <laughs> <laughs> or Halloween two. Those are a little. I get it. They don't want to call it Halloween two again. And so if I say, oh, man, I love Halloween two, you have to be like, which of the three? Yeah. Which of the three? <laughs> So I understand that, but Halloween kills? Is that a sentence? Is it, or are the kills a noun or is it a verb? And Halloween kills what? Exactly. There's no object. Halloween doesn't kill anything. It's Michael Myers. Why is Halloween kill? Is it a warning? Halloween kills. Why not call it Hey Jerk Speed Kills? And if you want to use so bad <laughs> it's actually a driving psa <laughs> halloween ends. you know what if it's they over. brought back nancy loomis i'd be fine with oh it. and then halloween ends in nancy loomis yeah. bring her back that's the only way to do it mm-hmm. halloween ends what the fuck but then i saw a headline that was like halloween ends won't be the last one and i was like my heart started beating faster and i was like are you kidding but then that was just a clickbaity headline because basically danny mcbride said like I mean, it's our last one, but it won't be the last. Meaning, like, of course, someone will resurrect this franchise again. Oh, my God. I'm just... This makes me desperate for another, like, Friday the 13th or Elm Street if they're going to do this for the next two years. Like, just... Can't you just ruin another franchise that already got ruined? Again, people people are excited about it, and you know they say Jamie Lee Curtis will be back for both of them. Okay, so, so she's gonna not die in the second one, and then she'll die in the last one, right? Or he'll die finally. I just, I, I just feel like who? I mean, people are excited, so whatever. For me, I say, who cares? It just depressed me. It's really bleak, that. right? It's, I like I said, people are excited. I just. It did nothing to excite me at all. There was no movement down below. You know what I mean? Nothing. (laughs) There was no smiling downstairs. (laughs) Nobody smiled down there. (laughs) Eh, you know, in this economy, who cares anymore? Who's got the time to care? We are racing up against the heat. Climate change. Yeah. Maybe by the time Halloween Ends comes out, Ari Aster will have made Midsummer 2. Pella marries Anthony. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe Luca will have, uh, you know. Maybe he would be finished with Mother of Tears even. By oh now. my god. Let's not forget that dream of him finishing the trilogy. Oh, Dakota, like, Dakota, like, there's a scene where she's like going through all of her amazing like Puritan um, gowns and like fur coats. And then, and then she pulls on her red hoodie. Yeah. <laughs> and then I take it off of her with a pole. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. I just, I just imagine you as a little like goblin imp. Standing <laughs> there with your, <laughs> with your, your hoodie pole. <laughs> Is that the hoodie I spy? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the hoodie is mine. That's what I want. I want the hoodie. It's cold in my goblin kingdom. (laughs) Who's the mother of tears now? (laughs) 
footsteps running away. <laughs> I can't be any worse than the first mother of tears. <laughs> so Luca, if you're listening and you need a goblin queen for Mother of Tears remake, I'm available. I'll bring my own pole. <laughs> Stacy, were you? Did you play every goblin in Legend? <laughs> Shh, don't tell anybody. Okay, okay, I'll keep your secret. I'll keep your secret. Your secret safe <laughs> with me. <laughs> Bring my own ball. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm looking oh. forward to 2020. I wasn't. You know, I have to say me too. Yeah, you, I wasn't. You turned my frown upside down. Now she is smiling downstairs. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Oh, poles and hoodies and all of poles it. Wow. And hoodies and goblins. Oh my. <laughs> I love I love her little feet yeah. as she runs away. That's just, that's just adorable. She absconds with the hoodie. <laughs> the like, wow. What the fuck? <laughs> Luca's really made some daring choices with this artistic vision. Yeah. Film Twitter's gonna oh. love that one. Oh, uh, you know, but that's that. Honestly, that's the kind of movie we deserve. Uh, and and that's the movie that, under the Marianne Williamson administration, th- that's the kind of work that will flourish under her new WPA. Right. So, <laughs> and I can't wait to discuss the significance of the goblin. What does the pole represent? <laughs> We really get into film theory. I can't wait for all the vulture articles of that, that <laughs> goblin with the pole explained. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you confused about the goblin with the pole? And then <laughs> before it comes out, there are websites that are like, we need to talk about the goblin with the pole. Okay. We need to address the problem with the goblin with the pole. <laughs> goblin with the pole is canceled. <laughs> Hashtag not all goblins with poles. <laughs> well, that'll be fun. I love that little goblin. <laughs> little hoodie thief. <laughs> oh my God. Well, but that's for a future episode. That's for a better tomorrow. That's for a better to- that's something to look forward to in 2020. It's true. And today we are we are we are at the precipice staring down we are 70 not, 72 years old staring down at the eventual end and the rebirth of LGBTQ Revenge Month. This is it, right? This is the last episode for it. The you know Deborah Hills down there with her mallet. She's ready to take care of business. <laughs> She's waiting for us to fall off the cliff. <laughs> I think it already happened. I a think minutes I ago. think everybody's <laughs> waiting. Honestly, right? Everybody, all the uh, listeners are down there with their mallets right now. Like, <laughs> just fucking yeah. jump, bitch! Just jump. <laughs> Everyone just pulled their comically oversized mallets from their backpacks, <laughs> yeah. Mary Poppins style. Yeah. They were just holding them behind their back, like in pieces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, none of us in our elevators noticed. No, no. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. This is the end, and then it's just what August. 
Big deal. Nobody likes August. It's the least favorite month of summer. August is like a Sunday night. Yeah, it really is. August is a fucking drag. You know, in the summer scale, because it's back to school. You have to buy your six number two pencils and your pink pearl eraser. Yeah. It's It's, no fun. It's, I mean, you're just boiling alive. Yeah. It's not even, it's not even pretty like fall. No. Down with August, I say. Down with August. I think we can, we can shake up August and make it exciting. Uh, All right. Because we're going to have to, because there's no other option, right? We're going to have to, because we're going to have to. For me, August is canceled. Canceling August. Hashtag canceled. August is canceled. Okay. Right. Yeah. Just you wait till you see her text history. <laughs> yeah. We got you know screenshots. what she said in 1996? Do you have any <laughs> idea what August said? August is over! August is over. Well, anyway, that's for but, another time. But we got two movies to... I think these two films, very uh, disconnected. Yeah. However, and yet. I think... I think they really kind of will work together. And I think they'll really work as, you know, because LGBTQ Revenge Month was sort of our version, our pride, if you will, as an extension of of what pride should be. Pride yes. should be a crazy riot. Uh, right. LGBT, we go, we went straight from pride into LGBTQ Revenge Month. And now we're wrapping it up with one, a little bit of both. Hachi chachi. <laughs> Whole lot of lesbians. There's a lot of lesbians. Finally. Finally. Somebody made a movie with lesbians in it. Oh my gosh. Man. Okay, well, we'll get to it. (laughs) Yeah, we will. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we fucking will. (laughs) I would just like to say right now that this was Anthony's... We're going to talk about passion second. We're structured so that we will talk about it second. Uh, But it was Anthony's first time seeing it. And I am so excited because we haven't talked about it. This was my, I don't know, I've seen Passion a few times, but this was Anthony's first time. And I'm just really excited because you never forget your first time with Passion. (laughs) It's just like the Titanic. You never forget the second that iceberg made that scraping sound. Yeah. (laughs) And rocked your world. Yep. Anybody who was on the Titanic is always going to remember that night. Lo and right? behold, I am an Irish maid floating deep under the cold waters. <laughs> <laughs> and you see that door on the surface and you say, I could grab that door. <laughs> or I could just knock. And you float away. And that's just- passion, folks. It truly is. You could just give it. I'm like, I'm like the asters. I'm just laying there on my bed, letting the water sweep over me. So, <laughs> but that is for later. Right now, let's talk about Knife Plus Heart. Knife Plus Heart, 2018. It's a French film. We're smart. We, re- film. we watch movies with subtitles. Yeah, I had to read for this shit. God damn it. Everybody oh, was going off about it, how much they loved it. And I was, I have to admit, I wasn't super excited about watching it. And I don't know why, if that was just me, like, uh, inadvertently being a contrarian and being like, I don't even want to see it. Because when I saw the trailer, uh, like, last year or whatever, I was really excited about it. Yeah. And then it but came then out. It and every giant hit. And then it was a giant hit. And I was like, and now I feel like I've seen it already. 
Well, you know, Stacy, you and I, we we both tend to kind of be grumbles every now and then. I'm a big grumbler. Why does yeah. anybody listen to this show? All I do is grumble. Because oh, well. you do it with a fucking goblin with a pole. Okay. <laughs> and that's okay. irresistible. Okay. Well, all right. Well, so, yeah, but then I obviously watched it for the show. And, you watched it. And survey says, uh, I really liked it. I really like this movie. I I have seen, I saw it once before. I saw it when it was uh, doing the, the Portland Queer Film Festival scene. Um, so I, I got to see it in a, in a movie theater. Uh, you, know. you weren't super, th- I think that was another thing. Is that I wasn't thrilled. Yeah, you had seen it, and I was like, should we talk about it for the show? And you were like, eh. Well, and I, I was kind of, I was kind of, I was unsure how you would feel about it. I wasn't, I didn't know that I really liked it. Um, Jason loved it out of the first, out of the first, out of the get-go, you know? And I was just like, I don't know how I felt about that movie. I think I need to see it again. Um, and I have to say, I'm actually really glad that we rewatched it because this time I, I feel like I zeroed in on what it's about. And I think I really loved it this time because I didn't have my yeah. expectations like I did the first time. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't I, go as, I, I think, well, both movies we're talking about today, they aren't really horror films. They are. Right. But they also aren't. Especially passion is more <laughs> thriller. The act of watching it, though. Knife and Heart, particularly, is uh, it, it's 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 a it's in drag as a horror film. Hmm. It's uh, it it hits on many of the tropes. It's a slasher. It's it's kind of giallo adjacent in in its construction and, and its um, visual motifs. But I think it's, you know, about halfway through the film, it turns into a different movie kind of. Yes. And then ultimately why I loved it the second time is I really, I really was touched Uh, having, having understood, having, having, knowing where the story is going and not feeling jostled by the kind of dip out of slasher and into this sort of more uh, sad, romantic, tragic mystery. Um, the second time I, I totally loved it. And I found it a really touching movie that uses tropes of horror to get somewhere really beautiful. I think kind of in a way, similar sort of like to the lure where it kind of goes all over the place, but there is a cathartic thing that comes out of all its different components that might seem um scatterbrained at first <laughs> yeah yeah i thought I, the title knife plus heart which is the american <clears throat> title obviously the english title is actually very apropos yeah because it kind of is like what you just said it's horror it's got the horror trappings but it's also a bit of a like melodrama like a sad thriller mystery melodrama very much a melodrama i get a lot of like alma devar vibes from this movie actually hmm. hmm i think it pairs well with i think it pairs well with passion as fucking bonkers as passion is. yeah I, I felt so too yeah it's so it's, weird it's definitely De Palma adjacent like good <laughs> De, good De Palma, shall i say and it, De- of the era of good De Palma, yeah. uh, at yes. least in its setting Right. Yeah. Although I will say that uh, 
I don't want to. I mean, if I were a rotten tomato, would I have to give it a green splat overall? Maybe. Why? Because it takes place in 1979. But then here comes a character wearing a Kiss t-shirt. And I said, oh, a Kiss t-shirt. Wow. It's got the cover for the Kiss album, Creatures of the Night, which we all know came out in 1982. Everyone knows. Everybody knows this. How they could have such a blatant error. Green splat, baby. Wow, Stacy Tomatoes. <laughs> Cold verdict. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Clearly, but I did notice that. You are correct. <laughs> this film lacked a dramaturg, a historical <laughs> dramaturg. That's right. Get your kiss t shirt right. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. If you're going to put a kiss, I'm surprised they put it. Well, it's French. I didn't even notice the kiss t shirt. I, I noticed the Seattle t shirt. And I was like, how did she get that Seattle t shirt? <laughs> But Everybody the, knows tra- travel wasn't invented until 1984. No. And Seattle, was it even around before the 90s? No, it wasn't established until Kurt Cobain founded it. That's right. Well, exactly. I'm sorry. Courtney Love founded it. Thank you. I need to call, until grunge call myself happened. in. Yeah. So anyway. No, I'm just kidding. I would not give it a green splat. I'd give it a, you know, a tomato. I'd give it a big old ripe red tomato, uh, as as red yeah. as um, beautiful, perfect Vanessa. How do we say her last name? Paradis. Vanessa Paradis. Uh, wonderful red lips that she wears in this film. Yeah, she's great in this. Oh my god! Anyway, sh- she's fantastic. I mean, all right, tell them what it is. So, knife and heart, uh, knife plus heart. What the fuck is the title? Um, this film is set in Paris, nineteen seventy nine. Uh, Vanessa Paradis plays Anne, who is a lesbian that directs gay porn. Uh, she has sort of a family of 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 uh, actors that she makes these films with, and it mostly consists of gay men. Later on, we meet uh, a bunch of great trans women, and she also has this. Uh, she's coming out of a breakup with her 10 year partner, Lois, who is her film editor along the way of them working on this film. There's a killer who starts showing up and murdering all of her actors. And the, the killer dresses up. It's Stacy. Let me tell you, this is my going out look. <laughs> I knew it. Anytime I go out on the town, which I do often, you know, I put on my leather jacket, my turtleneck, my gimp mask and my perm. That's right. Yeah, and I and I go dance. Uh, so this, put on your perm, baby. Put on that perm. So this this killer goes out and starts targeting the actors in her films. Ultimately, Anne begins making pornographic films in response. Like, sort of life becomes art, or life becomes porn in this case, and uh, sort of forms this weird kind of giallo mystery with the killer, where she's trying to figure out the backstory of this killer. And sort of communicates with him through her films and vice versa. Uh, it all culminates in the opening of her newest collection of, of porn films. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Uh, Anne is a very interesting character. Anne is a very complicated character and a very. She's a very complicated character. Very complicated. And this is part of why I had some issues with it the first time going in is. Some of her choices. <laughs> she makes some real bad choices. Um, I think it's, I kind of like that she's not perfect. Yeah. She's 
ostensibly the lead character, the heroine, ultimately. But she's also a villain. Yes. Um, she's not. There are going to be times you're not rooting for her. For a slasher, she's not the final girl. She's not the final girl and she's not the killer. Spoiler alert. But she's not a not a great person either. No. And she is, she and her, her backstory of this relationship with Lois, her editor, who, let me tell you, Lois, um, Kate Moran, I believe is her name, is mm-hmm. a queen. And I could watch that face yeah. for hours. <laughs> yeah. Even though I did get distracted and said, well, why is she wearing a Seattle t-shirt? But then I went back to looking at her face because it's gorgeous. But um, they, the two of them have, I mean, it's, it's a testament to a broken, unhealthy, codependent relationship. Yes. And so much of the movie is concerned with this relationship and the detritus of this relationship. Anne's attempts to salvage it. Uh, and Anne is kind of a stalker lunatic with Lois. Yeah. Yeah. There were some moments that were really nice. I want to say, like, I liked the idea that she was trying to whether she should have been trying to win Lois back or not Mm -hmm. is one issue yes but I I did like the idea that she was at times trying to sort of seduce Lois through art yeah yeah because in some way in Lois was her muse in a lot of ways even though she was pulling shit from real life and blah 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 blah. she would like film things like she upped the quality of her films and what was going on in the films to impress Lois. She went from being, I mean, this story is it's, there's a lot of uh, it's, it's really, I mean, I, I said life, life becomes art. And then I changed that to life becomes porn, but really this is sort of challenging the distinction between pornography and art um, where Anne yes. is a, a, a woman filmmaker. Um, she is an, she makes art house porn uh, and she is doing, she's making these films and she is upping her ante to impress Lois and to try and win her back. She communicates with Lois. It, it's interesting that it's both, she communicates with both the killer and with Lois through her films. Um, all the way down to when she takes the knife and she carves into the film that she knows Lois is going to be editing and reviewing the next day. And she leaves a message for her in it. Yes. Yeah. That was all, not the carving it in, not carving words into the film, but like trying to seduce someone through yeah. creativity. I really responded to because that's, if I, I don't know. I, if there is someone I'm interested in, uh, one thing that re- it really sparks my creativity personally and i will absolutely like i find myself doing i i become extremely prolific (laughs) and doing my best work to impress her because that's i mean i don't know that's just how i operate and so i was like i I get Mm -hmm. you Anne. i get you when when lois was like these films are getting really like same old shit every time blah 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 and Anne overheard that and then just really kind of got inspired by it i just i don't know i really related to that i guess yeah yeah no i think it's i think it's very true of being a maker and she these these films are um she's also trying to demonstrate growth too yes of like look i am i am capable of being better right 
and of of tr- uh, treating you right. I think their relationship it kind of goes back and forth. Like there's there are moments that are hard and and loving um, where Lois sort of um, you almost think there's going to be a chance. There's one conversation in particular, and and then it does go back and forth. And it actually as as uh, fucked up and unhealthy as the relationship is and despite i mean the the grotesqueness of the things that happen and i think what we're talking around is that Anne ultimately sexually assaults lois at one point of the film yeah um and it's a really hard scene and it really makes you question your sympathy for the main character who you are following Mm -hmm. the entire film um i think simultaneously i mean talking around that the but simultaneously the rest of the relationship that's shown is also the really kind of honest depiction of the fallout and the messiness of having been with someone for 10 years and then being such right. an integral part of your life and then trying to rebuild around that right and can you recapture anything um maybe you can i don't i i don't personally think you always can um but just like you've been together for so long and it's like, yeah, I do love you, but this is not good for me. Mm-hmm. And like when you work together and you do care about the person, but that it's always strange to have a, a, like, I don't know what your experience is with this, but to have a breakup where you don't like hate each other and you're not like, it's not like it was overtly abusive necessarily or anything like that and so basically you can tolerate this person but to just suddenly be like our relationship is different now Hmm. is a very strange place to be in Hmm. yeah you have to restructure i haven't i mean i haven't had that experience but you'd have to restructure your life right yeah i had a like a fairly long-term live-in relationship and then it was like you know what this is not working like we're done but there was an overlap of like getting out like getting away from that physically like moving essentially there was an overlap but it's like i don't hate this person it's just not working but for it to be like okay from five minutes ago to right now when we've decided to break up our relationship is different Hmm. Mm -hmm. and still trying to navigate that and talk to each other it can get really messy yeah and so I just, I thought it, basically my point is that like, it all rang really true. It's very, it's very true to life. And as a, as also as like a really intensely feeling um, depiction of a lesbian relationship, it's, I'm grateful yeah. for that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, even if it isn't, if it's not the most positive depiction of one, like the fact that they are complicated, complex women who are allowed to feel uh, intricately is really lovely. Yeah. Um. They're also, I mean, and it's complicated too, because Anne is the director, um, you know, in, in this society, we champion auteurs or like the visionary and yeah. Anne is the visionary. She's the director, but they're co-authors. Um, yes. And, and it's, it's kind of amazing. Even, you know, spoiler alert, Lois ultimately dies. Um, it's really tragic. Uh, she, she basically like takes the fall in front of, um, as the killer charges and Lois jumps in front and gets stabbed in the heart. Uh, and at the end, when she's when Anne goes and she's watching the films as they're all looping in this porn theater, and a guy tells her, "I love all your work. This is your masterpiece." And she says, "It was all Lois." Right. Uh, it's really sad and beautiful, but it also does speak to to co authorship. They 
they're they're not they weren't just lovers they also are are co-authors and um i was I'm, i'm happy that the film captures this that directing i've always been surprised by directors that don't edit their films i know that that's not that's kind of rare but um I feel like editing is just as important as directing in telling a story and in what the yeah. audience you're controlling what the audience sees. The director sets the vibe, the everything going into it, but ultimately it's up to an editor to command what the director sees or what the audience sees. Right. And I think like people who are super into film know that, but for general audiences, it's like, they don't know that like, Thelma Schoonmacher is as responsible for Martin mm. Scorsese as Martin yes. Scorsese is. Yeah, right. you know, and look at the look at the shift in like I haven't seen his new film. I know how you have talked about it, but look at Sally Benke with Quentin Tarantino and how mm-hmm. vital she was to his early work. You know, mm-hmm. things like that, and even like George Miller, these big crazy action. His wife is the is the editor. That's the thing, and it's it's so important. And they're like the unsung heroes. So. How do you, like Mad Max? Yeah, Mad Max, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. I'm I'm sure you know it. It would be a great movie, maybe no matter how it was edited. But how how else? How do you take a two two and a half hour car chase and make it riveting every single second? Right. Yeah. I'm not saying like Martin Scorsese is nothing without, but, but do you know what I mean? Like the editor is. Oh, that's, yeah. I'm vital to the process. I, and I'm, a lot that's of what these. I'm saying. Yeah. I absolutely agree with it's, you. Yeah. The male auteurs often, it's like them and them alone. Yeah. No. It's and like, it's, it's like George Miller's fucking wife was, and I, I'm, I'm, I hate saying George Miller's wife because I can't remember her name right now. Right. But yeah, I mean, she won, an, she won an Oscar for editing that movie. Like he did not win an Oscar for directing it. She won the Oscar for editing it. Uh, right. To the same end, George Lucas's, yeah. I wish I knew her name, George Lucas's ex-wife. Uh, Star Wars was a fucking mess until she re-edited, yeah. she took it and she edited it. And that's the edit that made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the yeah. edit that made it a hit. Everyone that had seen the movie or the rough cuts thought it was unbearable and that George had just made a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so it was really, I thought that was really beautiful in this film, especially like Anne as the creative and of like being like communicating to this woman through art and being inspired by this woman yeah. to also be like, no, we were a creative partnership. Yeah. I really, I don't know. I really liked it. Yeah, there. Really it. It's I. I. And here's what. Here's what I. When I watched the film the first time, so I'm like, okay, I want to. I'm, I'm. Everyone says it's a slasher, super queer. I was like, okay, there's a lot of gay porn. Um, I or filming around gay porn. Nothing is really shown. It's it's mostly all just simulated, uh, and off camera. But um, I'm like a lot of gay porn. Okay, there's a couple deaths. There's some like cool music. The music is great. Uh, Ma three D. Yes. Did the music. Yeah. It's fucking great. Um, and then it dips into this, like, it goes into a weird place where suddenly there's bird hands and, <laughs> yeah. and flashbacks yeah. and dream sequences. And it becomes even more, a little more giallo, but like weird fucking weird giallo shit. And then we get this conclude. And then I was like, okay, it, the movie gra- grabbed, there's the rape. Then the movie grabbed me back in with the, conclusion because i thought that was really beautiful to tie it back into this killer and his story and internalized homophobia and shame and guilt um but this time i was like i really i got out of my dumb expectations and my dumb head 
and I was seeing like, okay, there's two relationships here and it's, it's Anne and Lois. And then there's the killer Guy Fav, uh, and his backstory of him and, and, um, Heacham, the, the boy that he loved back in 1964. And it's like the beauty of love and what it, what it can do. And then the, the, the kind of dark side of love and what it can cause us to do to each other. Yes. Uh, whether it's due to homophobia or due to, um, I don't know what it would be. Personal demons. Personal demons. Yeah. And Anne's an alcoholic and. (laughs) Yeah. And like wanted a happy, successful relationship and she just wasn't capable of it for one reason or another. Like she's an alcoholic. She's volatile. She's whatever. Yeah. And she has this family with her actors, but also she doesn't pay them well. She doesn't treat them very well. Right. Down the line, I think part of this is about her really embracing them as a family. And that's why I think the the end credit sequence is really lovely and beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Because she's kind of understood, understood that they are a family. Also, she triples everyone's pay for the last film. Um, right. Yeah. So seeing this as these two parallel stories of these two different sets of lovers, I think, is really, really beautiful. And the the queer inclusivity in this film. Yeah, like it's so there's so much like gay male gay porn kind of centered stuff. But at the same time, there's this beautiful there's this really complicated lesbian relationship. There's all the trans girls who I fucking love in this movie. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it, and it feels like a very authentic dra- documentation um, or kind of re-documentation of that sort of that era of what it meant to be trans and also like a sex worker. And also, uh, yeah, it was really... Yeah, I think that's what what put me off was that like on the surface, the description of like it's it's like a giallo. It's like a really stylish, you know, slasher movie set around gay porn. And it's like, well, I like all of those things, you know, like, I mean, I'm not like into gay porn, but I mean, like that would be interesting. But it all just felt like stylistic trappings on the surface, like to, you know, just read that sort of log line like it's like maybe why you don't watch stranger things maybe right yeah it just kind of felt like that and so watching it i just i guess i was very shocked that there's so much heart to it and that it's so sad and really lovely i was crying in the fucking ending this time Yeah, it's the whole thing is very depressing, very sad. I do like the family as like that's really stuck out to me is like this whole sort of everybody who's not straight and cis like this just queer family yeah in the like right before the aids era that's the other thing is 1979 it is this is the ultimate deliberate yeah the ult i mean they're dealing with an internal killer right but there's an even greater one on the horizon yes and that's the the kicker tragedy to this film is that you know that's what's going to impact all of these characters immediately after this and i thought it like not to get you know not to indulge in nostalgia or whatever but it's like that strange whatever the german word is for nostalgia for something you haven't actually experienced but Mm. watching it and like the freedom of right before the aids era and just like all the wonderful nightclub sequences and everything and it just found me being like like oh my god i wish we had clubs like that when lois puts on her red 
stitched pants, leather pants. <laughs> and she goes and she meets that she meets that like giant black queen who lets her into the nightclub and then Anne follows her in and it's just you just see that sequence of that person just like dancing doing that like shimmy dance with her boots. And then everyone comes in. Oh my god, the music, the lighting, the dancing, the bodies, the diversity? The diversity the, it's a, the gender it's, diversity, which you don't always see. Yeah, the film, I mean, uh, Grant, most of the characters, I think, are, are white or read as white. Um, but then right. in, these, in the club sequences, it's yes. utmost gender, body, and racial diversity. And uh, it's, I, I wonder, you know, historically, if if that level of queer engagement and diversity is, is really the case. Um but it, it kind of comes, it's sort of an imagined utopia, like a, his, a past utopia that could have been. Right. Uh, where, yeah. where it is, like you said, it's all queers, everyone that's not straight all together. Yeah. And it's, it's really wonderful to see because I haven't seen that in a film, I think. Like, I think the closest thing I've seen tried to do that is like ta- the new fucking Tales of the City on Netflix. And it's terrible. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> but this... Yeah is it's it, it really just made me yeah it made me really wistful for something because it's like especially like the the scene where um Anne goes to the lesbian bar and sees that weird cabaret act yeah oh the lesbian burlesque bear act of all time <laughs> yeah also yeah. and and that like elderly patty patty lupone meets amy sedaris bartender <laughs> Yeah, it's like good luck trying to find a just any lesbian bar now. Like I was, I mean, I was in New York for like the week before Pride, or like when Pride kicked off, and we were like, let's go to the, let's find a lesbian bar. And it's like ninety eight percent of the bars that were there when I lived there, which wasn't like nineteen sixty five. You know, they were yeah. all closed. It's like, well, I guess we'll go to the Cubby Hole, and it's just tiny, and because it's the like fucking only place, it's just a nightmare do you know what i mean like yeah there's just there are no lesbian bars there's hardly yeah. any gay bars anymore like there used to be at least a diverse selection and now it's just towns especially outside of the city are just getting whittled down and whittled down oh that's the same in portland here we had you know i'm actually doing a project right now for the portland biennial about it about how we had we had like 15 20 gay bars we actually had like at least a lesbian bar i think we did have multiple but we had the e-room when as gentrification said on the e-room was the first one to go like 15 years ago yeah uh among the first to go and now now we have like maybe five spaces total there is no lesbian bar no there's never a lesbian bar. Like, the lesbian bars are the first to go. And if you're lucky, you'll get a ladies' night at the gay bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's just, I mean, I don't know. I guess if, I don't know. I guess the businesses just can't sustain. And, like, that's fine. But I just, this made me really wistful for that and made me wish that our gay bar selections were better. Oh. And even just, like, anything from that time. I mean, like, you look at shit like Studio 54, and it's oh. just like, sure, everybody was out of their fucking minds on drugs, but man, what a fucking time that must have been. But, and you know, and I've talked about this with you, like, regardless of uh, my place and whatever the queer world, queer art world, any of that, like, I I feel a connection to the, to the activists of the 60s and the 70s 
mm-hmm. and the early 80s. Um, I feel a deep connection to like the ancestors that I'll never get to meet because they all died. Right. Uh, and that's something that me as like a gay or queer or whatever, however the fuck I identify on any day person, like when when I think about my politics and I think about the people I want to honor, it's that era. And mm-hmm. like that's that's the era that I feel like I belong to more so than today. Yeah. Um, oh, and, absolutely. And to see it represented as like this utopic uh, family. Yeah. It's really it. There is that that kind of nostalgia factor to it, but it is a queer nostalgia for a. a, a I don't know. It seems better than what we've got today. Yeah. It seems more honest. It seems. Uh, more real it's not corporate it's not marketed it's underground right it's It's not sponsored by bud light yeah (laughs) you know yeah and it was diverse it was like i mean even when i lived in la and it's like we'd go out to like you know a gay bar like ladies night or whatever it's like everybody fucking looked the same it was like there was a uniform at the door you know (laughs) it's like literally these women all just had the same exact look and you look at pictures from like like i said studio 54 or something and it's like okay so here's sammy davis jr and alice cooper and gene stapleton (laughs) and you know like uh bianca jagger and just like these like i just it was like more inclusive i guess like anything goes that sort of anything goes and i don't feel like anything really goes anymore Maybe because everybody's taking everybody's pictures all the time. I don't know. Mm, mm-hmm. Everybody's got a video camera in their pocket. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Is that a passions callback? Or call forward? <laughs> yeah, it's a call forward for passion. But seriously, like, I think people are more reserved now. I just, I don't know. Yeah, well, also, we're we're safer. Um, we're safer. And I don't mean that in the terms of, like, we're, we're I mean... Uh, I don't know that I mean it like we're like physically safe or or safe from violence or anything, but like we're we're a lot more conservative today. Oh God, yeah. Uh, e- even as we open up and and continue to expand the acronym, the LGBTQIAS plus two S asterisk acronym, even as we continue to expand that, uh, we actually become more rigid in yes. in our definitions of queerness in our allowances for what it can be and for the behavior we should have i mean i think and i say this as someone who benefited from it well i mean i did not get a fucking tax credit like i thought i was gonna get but as, <laughs> as someone who got married legally uh i think simultaneously gay marriage kind of fucked us up a bit Um, Well, look at what we were talking about during Pride Month, the beginning of Pride Month, where it was somebody, some 20-year-old queer, you know, is setting the rules for what you should and shouldn't do at Pride. Yeah, no. And it's like, am I, should a furry come down the street during Pride? Am I completely mortified? And do I hope and pray that people won't associate me with furries? (laughs) Of course. This is your greatest fear, we all know. I mean, it's just mortifying to me to like honestly, like if you listen, if you're listening to this and you're a furry and you have the whole suit and everything, good for you. You march down the street for pride. I'm mortified to be associated. I'll say it. 
I'll say it. I'm sorry. I really hope we have a listener in full fursuit right now. And I see you, Queen, wherever you are. I'm sorry. It's like that. It's it's that sort of duality of being like, do whatever you want. Bless you. Absolutely. I would never take away your fursuit. That pole is got, not going anywhere near that fursuit. Pole not going near the fursuit, honestly. Go- goblin is staying in her little underground goblin kingdom. I would never tell you not to go to Pride. That's the. Th- I think that's the difference. Is I'm not saying like no furries at Pride. You're, I'm just like you're also oh. not. Gonna, you're not going to be like oh I was non consensually visually violated because I saw a furry at Pride. Exactly. I'll just be like the furries will go by and I'll go oh jeez. We need to talk about the problem with furries. Hashtag yeah. call out. Hashtag cancel. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, my arguments and everything just come down to like it's not for me. Yeah, and that's that's the is, end of it. Which is yeah. totally fair and equitable. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell a furry not to do their furry stuff. But that's the that's this new wave of of and, and it is funny because I think I think uh, the the younger generation, my slash also the newest generation that's coming up and getting on the internet, I think, um, are are, are actually just mirroring the fundamentalism like Christian fundamentalism and Republican conservatism that they see and they grow up with and are just repurposing that under liberal or progressive um, uh, parameters. Where now, Absolutely. Now we're just reasserting the same conservatism. Everything There's still this agreeability politic that goes along with our identity politic. Um, and it is, it's gross. And this, that's what like we were talking about with Pride Month, like about the spirit of John Waters. We need that back. And mm-hmm. in Knife and Heart, like watching her films, Anal Fury, Homocidal, <laughs> Hex Graded, yeah. watching those films and seeing the seedy porn theater where guys are like masturbating in there, seeing her um, her fucking gorgeous, grainy art films. I want to watch those movies. Seeing yeah. The, it feel, seeing the lesbian burlesque club and the bear act, uh, and it's like erotic and gross and homemade and cheap. Um, it feels like it felt, it feels very hand in hand with like desperate living, you know, it feels Mm -hmm. like female trouble. It, it feels like that grimy queer in your face. We don't give a fuck. You're, you can't get rid of us because we are demons from hell. Like it's. Yeah. We're still getting told not to act a certain way or to act a certain way. It's just now it's coming from both sides. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's like people who supposedly fall under the banner are also policing our behavior. Yeah, and it's it's just like what what's going on, guys? Like, why are why are you capitulating to this sort of heterosexual industrial complex? Mm -hmm. You know, like you want to get married, get married. You know, but it's like we're also just. Hey, what's the say? Is it Audrey Lord? You can't dismantle the master's house by using the master's tools. Master's tools, yeah. That's yeah, what we're doing, and you're we're, t- we're tearing down the community using the exact same paradigm. Using the same paradigm, the same language, the same tactics. Like you know, gay people are shamed all the time now by gay people. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're our number one worst enemy. We're our number one worst enemy, and so I just like that really. 
I don't know. I realized that the era portrayed in this film came to a screeching fucking halt. And I know that it was a horror story after that, like through the 80s for a long time. And a most, you know, vast percentage of the community literally just didn't survive. Like, yeah. I get that. The ramifications but, were un they're untraceable how big of an impact it had. Yeah. But the before, like this little window where it's like it wasn't 1950, where, you know what I mean? You just couldn't be who you were at all. It's like it was post Stonewall pre-AIDS kind of disco era. And I'm just like, oh, man. Just imagine if it hadn't gone that way, you know? Yeah. Like, well, how yeah. different How different would it be? What What other thing would we have ended up facing or what world would we be in? Like, what, what would queerness right. look like? Yeah. Because you even look at pictures, you know, you follow, I follow like a history account on Instagram and they post pictures all the time. And it's like what the protest marches looked like back then. And it was like, dykes for gay men. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. dykes for art. Like all this other, it was like, it felt more like a community than it does now. Yeah. And that's, we weren't drawing these, I mean, we weren't drawing these identity lines between ourselves and, and siphoning and bordering ourselves off from each other too. Right. Uh, I mean, there historically, there's like that gross joke of you know whatever gay men and lesbians hating each other, and I think I think that's a post AIDS thing. Um, yeah, because lesbians were like the ones championing and gay men during the AIDS era and like donating blood and taking care of them. Yeah, like the community yeah. really looked out for each other. So this whole like pitting, you know, gay men and lesbians against each other is just. I hate it. Yeah. And now, <laughs> like, and we're doing, really we're doing, it. it's the same thing is happening with trans people and with, um, with the cis members of the community too now, where mm-hmm. it's like, well, actually back in the day, we were way more ingrained and the, because society looked at all of us as monsters. Yes. It's important to assert personhood as a trans person. It's important to have that identity and have that visibility. Um, simultaneously, we are also creating barriers that weren't necessarily there before where it was a lot more of a blur because society looked at all of us as freaks yes so you know the back when yeah lesbians were marching for gay men and trans women were leading our marches yeah (laughs) like it's and that that's the world that is captured in this film and it is it is interesting too that guy fav as as the killer who you know his he had this boyfriend they were kissing the dad walks in the dad is horrified pulls out a knife castrates the boyfriend sets them on fire burns down the barn Guy survives and comes back as this like self-hating killer who who is is ultimately killing um the actors in Anne's film because her film is really evocative of what he went through it reminds him and it brings back his memory of his trauma uh Ultimately, there is kind of a, a level of commun- of that community infighting with, with the character of Guy and with his motives as a killer. Oh, see, I took all of that and I took another message of this film and I don't know if it was intentional or yeah. not. But is there a responsibility on the part of the artist when they are fictional- fictionalizing real life events? because her film was just a fictionalized version of what happened to him. And when, as soon as actors in her film started dying, she was taking that storyline. 
And she makes and creating films. And, you know, she was like, hey, here's a new film idea. And, you know, other like her producer and things are like, don't you care about what's happening? And so I just thought it, and I think she kind of came around to it and got sensitive to it by the end of the film. And then it is funny that then her next film, at least in the dream Fantasia thing, is like very like classic Greek. Yes. She's going to something totally not based in real life. Right. Yeah. So I just thought it was like a, you know, oh. with how many films that are artists. I mean, even the new Tarantino. Like I had, like I said, I haven't seen it. But, you know, that was a big hubbub beforehand. It's like, oh, the Manson murders and yeah. all these films about Manson. And like, what is, is there a responsibility in the artist for how they treat this subject matter? Yeah. And yeah, if, right. if there is a response, if there is a responsibility, like, what is it? Yeah. representation and responsibility yeah now it was it was a coincidence that Anne's film the ori- initial film it's just a coincidence that that paralleled so strongly with with what happened to, to Guy, right i don't think it was ever stated because i mean she has dreams about it before she has dreams so that it could have just been prophetic or maybe she read about it in the paper yeah and it was know. something that she unconsciously yeah because there, there's some unanswered questions there, like what happened to Fode, the actor, right? What, where, what, what, what was the impetus for this film? Was it inspired by something that happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely get that sense of yeah of uh, representation and responsibility too with homicidal and <laughs> anal theory. Her films were so great. I They're love so them. good. And there's also They're a lot about just, I mean, it kind of ties into the Anne Lois thing, but just like the joy of creating. Yeah. You know, when they were all making these movies, this little like family, this very like Dreamlanders kind of very family. Dreamlanders. They're having the time of their lives. Yeah. You know? And like, it's so nice. Like when they go off and like have their picnic like take right. a break and they you see they they do spend all their time together yeah uh, it feels very authentic um it's there's also i think to the same end to the a flip side of of representation and responsibility with her remake it just kind of taking the horrible things that are happening kind of disregarding the realities of that her actors are being murdered and then redepicting that in her films there also is another side element of queers um as makers using art to digest and to sort of reclaim and to parody trauma mm, as mm-hmm. a survival mechanism too. Yes. Um, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. And I feel I like the more it. this movie settles with me, the more I'm going to like it. I'm going to watch it again. I loved it. I want to watch it again. It, the second viewing really, once I really zeroed into what it was about and I got over my shit, I really loved it. And and that ending between her telling the story of Guy and yeah. seeing the fantasy where Lois is back and then she's kissing her and then she gets pulled away and Lois vanishes, but then she still has her family. Like yeah. I was weeping. And before that, when Guy gets taken down, it's really hard because you kind of don't want to see him die, but it's sort of putting him out of his misery and seeing yes when yeah. all the men in the porn theater stand up and they'll say, oh, you think it's okay. You like killing fags. Right. They don't know what his motivation is. No. And but then seeing that uh, you see that like that really kind of emaciated kind of twink guy who stands up and he's like shaking. And you can only imagine what happened to him 
Mm-hmm. And then that moment when he picks up the knife and the rage that he gets to express when he kills Guy, like it's, I was crying. It's really thoughtful and yeah, empathetic and yeah, so 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 gay. <laughs> yeah, I appreciated just how gay this movie is. Yeah, it was like nice, like to have you know it's the gay porn industry and also to have a lesbian couple and also to have all these trans women it's just like oh my god yeah i didn't feel like like i mean i thought it was just gonna be gimmicky just based on you know the descript the the lame description of it you know what i mean but it's like this movie is so much more than just like a stylish slasher about gay porn yeah you know yeah which is what it was sold as uh because that's what's going to get people in the seats but it was yeah it's beautiful and fucking a it's so well made <laughs> it's beautiful oh my gosh we don't ever get that so that was and with amazing actors with a, i mean you can't ask for a better lead actor yeah. too than Vanessa Paradis like she yeah. that blue eyeshadow that gap in her teeth oh she is yeah visually well and, and she's an capable yeah she's capable of playing all that this character needs which is like you have to love her and kind of hate her yeah <laughs> you know and sometimes both at the same time yeah oh yeah you know? and and she does that very well and that was part of my conflict with the first time I watched it was not knowing how to feel about her uh yeah and she does that very well um people are complicated yeah who knew and it's very it's a very real i have met met many Anne's in my life she is a real person and you know who is the realest of the real people in this film who i want to give a very special shout out to Mm. is kathy the woodland (laughs) rural lesbian (laughs) oh yeah oh poor sullen kathy who is trapped trapped in that cabin with her father and she's not even allowed to drink (laughs) oh god i love kathy so much so sad i just love kathy i love her i love her mole i hope I hope, I hope, I hope that Anne comes and just shows up with a barrel of whiskey for her and liberates her. (laughs) She looks at those flowers and is like, oh, yeah. Oh, Kathy. (laughs) Kathy. (laughs) So sad. Kathy, my queen. So despite the the anachronistic kiss t-shirt. Which almost toppled the entire film. Almost toppled the entire thing. fine i love it okay knife plus heart it's great great movie it's really great really great really movie. great and it, like a nice surprise because you were so lukewarm going into it i and you know that contributed to my lukewarmness yeah so what an extra treat then to fall in love with it. yeah i'm kind of i'm happy that it worked out this way i'm happy that i had my weird history with this film and that I was able to get to this point where, like, I can cry thinking about it. <laughs> it's nice. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really nice. Yes. Yeah. And furthermore, I don't know if the Blu-ray has this. I clearly need to get it. But I really hope someone somewhere has Anal Fury, Homicidal, and Hex rated for me to watch because they're cool. No kidding. <laughs> Great fucking movies. And these are the kinds of movies that need to be being made today. <laughs> I agree. 100%. I am shocked that it's a movie about the gay porn industry. There is a dildo switchblade. Yes. Yeah, very crimes of passion weapon. 
not a single penis on display. Not one. No, I was surprised. Everything is off screen. Yeah. There's even a double ejaculation. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) It's so good. It's so funny. Yep. I mean, Lois was a genius, right? That editor. She was. You know, but I mean, I just, I guess I was just surprised. Yeah. That it managed to not show me. And as a French film, because let's be real, those fuckers are perverted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I just realized, For- Stacey, that splits that that double ejaculation was set to a very De Palma esque split screen. <laughs> it is a, honestly, it's a very De Palma esque film. Like I think, like people say, giallo, giallo, giallo. Like, sure, it's got some trappings of that. It's also got a lot of De Palma. I mean, we say giallo because what colors? Because colors and black gloves. Colors, black gloves, and a mystery about the trauma, the killer's trauma. That's the. Only that's thing that like makes it giallo. Otherwise, it has that's, no. This has no giallo trappings beyond those. So yeah, that's what everybody says. You know, that's all you need. It's because every every anytime you put a fucking put a colored light, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, it's like Suspiria." Yeah, <laughs> everyone learned how to say yellow in Italian, and we now all think we're special. <laughs> yeah, everybody loves Suspiria seventy seven. I mean, who doesn't? It's but it's like, it's just become such a like. I'll put some colors in the background. Everybody will think it's just like a early odd gym. Yep. But no, it's very De Palma, and which I was surprised, actually. I was not expecting that. And so I had to give even more of a chef's kiss to this double feature. Oh, my God. Are we ready for it? <sighs> Passion. Will one ever be ready for it? <laughs> nope. I was so, I mean, I didn't know that we would ever have an opportunity to talk about this film. <laughs> I've never written about it at length. I've seen it a few times. You wrote a blurb about I'm, it on Final Girl, right? I wrote a blurb about it, yeah, but never, I've never written at length or reviewed it, actually. And I am just so excited to talk about it because I love this movie. I, okay. I remember when this was first getting made. Uh, it must be said at this time. I did not realize this movie is this old. 2012, which I mean, technically isn't old, but like in the scheme of time speeding up and now we're almost at August and I'm going to wither and crumble into dust like Saruman at the end of the Lord of the Rings book. Like <laughs> it's it feels like a fucking it's almost a decade ago, right? Yeah. At the time this movie came out, Rachel McAdams and Numi Rapace were both huge stars. This movie yes. is it's De Palma coming back after a like six year absence with Black Dahlia. Uh, this movie, I remember reading about this on the horror websites I frequent and thinking like, this is going to be a huge deal. And it looks so sleek. It looks, I see, I see images of white masks. I see these two actresses. There's De Palma. There's lesbian intrigue. Uh, it looks like this is going to be a highfalutin art film, like Hitchcockian thriller, right? Lo yeah. and behold, eight, nine years later, I sit down and watch this. And I think that <laughs> I think this movie has finally broken me. This <laughs> is the straw <laughs> wow. that broke this camel's back. <laughs> it feels like this is shocking to me to hear you say that. <laughs> I love this movie. It is 
a self-indulgent mess. Uh, <laughs> it's trashy. It's bonkers. It feels like uh, someone made an AI program watch a lot of De Palma movies, <laughs> and then the AI directed them. Yes. And everybody just said it was De Palma. Yes. All of my notes for this is just, what the fuck? What the fuck? What is this movie? What is this scene? My last note, what the fuck is this movie? (laughs) My last note, even after I've seen this several times and I know what happens, my last note is what the fuck? (laughs) I did also write De Palma's eye murders, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) I love this movie. It's very, as I say that it's bonkers, and cuckoo nutso. It also is very restrained for De Palma. It feels like he showed yeah. up four times on the set and just had it on, had autopilot on for the rest. Absolutely. There are also, there are three sets in this film. Everything yeah. takes place in a wood paneled boardroom, which we're supposed to think is like a really fancy boardroom somewhere in Berlin. <laughs> uh <laughs> Or Numi's apartment or Rachel McAdams' house. I love this movie so much. It's very sleek. It's very Such a visually um, beautiful. It feels very like Andre Secular style cinematography. It's, yeah. yeah it's uh, <laughs> also the plot of Working Girl. <laughs> like is the... <laughs> we should say it is a remake of a French yeah, film. A Kristen Scott Thomas and Ludivine Sagnier film. Yes. Which I did not yeah, know. Called Love Crimes. Called Love Crimes. Yeah, and only I think, two years before. Yeah. And those characters have an age difference that is not in I've never seen it and I would like to because I have a feeling it's not as messy as passion. <laughs> So I'd like to, but I just haven't got, I forget about it and I got it. Like, I feel like that one might actually be a thriller. Yes. (laughs) Unlike this one. God, I love this movie. (laughs) I really, okay. I think if I watch it a hundred more times, I think I will really fall in love with it. I think I was just so constantly perplexed, like, it's the Monty Python skit confuse a cat where the cat's depressed. So they need to confuse it to make it undepressed. And so they hire the confuse a cat people that show up and put on a bizarre Dada play to reconfuse the cat. This was my confuse a cat. I'm and I'm surprised. still confused. I thought that uh, <laughs> I thought the trashy bunkersness would really click with you. I'm surprised. Oh, you say no, that. no, it did. It did. But I just, I'm so, I feel so st- I'm still in a state of stunned. Oh yeah, you just have to let that happen. That I'm I'm still letting this wash over and out of me, you know? It's like it's like a I'm 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 kind of I have a passion hangover, I think. <laughs> like... yeah, yeah. All right. So for people who don't know, which I find that hard to believe that there's anybody who hasn't seen passion because, you know, you've heard so many good things about it. Because it only got us straight to DVD release. Oh, I love this movie. So, After it's run at con. <laughs> Rachel Mc... I'll try to do my best here. Yeah, this is a convoluted plot. It's so. really fucking convoluted. Um, so I'll just have to give you the cliff notes. Because there are so many 
surprises waiting for you if you haven't seen this movie. So Rachel McAdams is Christine. Uh, she's the head of this advertising agency. And let me tell you, Anthony, you're not going to get this because you haven't seen Momo's Place. And you refuse to. Yeah, yeah. You deny my dreams of a Melrose Place podcast. Yeah, I'm killing the Melrose Place industry. You are. The Melrose Place industrial complex. Industrial (laughs) apartment complex. (laughs) People who have seen Melrose Place will understand when I say that Christine is very Amanda Woodward of D&D advertising. She looks amazing. She wants it on her desk at three o'clock. No excuses. (laughs) And she will backstab you, but smile while she's doing it and tell you that she's not backstabbing you because it's all business, baby. This is the way it is in business. Does she make out with all of her employees too? No, it was, you know what? It was the early nineties. No, she doesn't. Okay. So, okay. So, that is Christine, as played to perfection by Rachel McAdams, who is the only person, it seems, who knows what this movie actually is. Right? <laughs> she is so weird. It's She's so- the only one who gets it, I think. <laughs> it's so weird. She's the only one who knows what's up with this. I love Rachel McAdams. She's great. Numi Rapace plays her number two, Isabel. An up-and-comer who comes up with a great idea for a phone advertisement. Or is it the jeans? It's the jeans. It's a Well, it's a phone advertisement that uses jeans. Uses jeans, yes. Because it, the, one of the- I got op- confused because then it was the jeans advertisers wanted. Jeans advertisers want in. But it, the, yes, because it, it all kicks off with the line, our smartphone has to be the smartest. <laughs> As they're brainstorming their- <laughs> smartphone ad yeah so she comes up with this brilliant ad for this phone but brilliant homemade amazing capitalizing on sexism it's amazing it goes the ad goes viral later 10 million views in five hours five hours (laughs) for this commercial for a homemade, someone put a phone in someone's back pocket. <laughs> 10 million views in five hours, baby. It's the most that. revolutionary cell phone commercial ever. Yeah. So uh, it's a big success. Christine takes all the credit for it. I just, how can you even explain this movie? <laughs> That's because why I'm it's... so grateful you're doing it. <laughs> Because when you think about the things that happen, and it's like, when I say there's a lot of surprises waiting for you, I'm not kidding. Very like, much in line with martyrs. Very much in line with the perfection. <laughs> you never know where it's going to go. You never fucking know. The second you think you know what's happening, a whole nother twin shows up to confuse the shit out of you. <laughs> but does she? Does she? Was it a dream? We don't know. So, Okay. So there's some backstabbing, but it's just business, baby. Uh, Isabel is sleeping with Christine's boyfriend. Dirk. Christine Dirk, <laughs> who's the worst. Dirk is uh, a Christine seems to have the hots for Isabel. Is it a power play or does she really have the hots for her? We don't really know. Dirk has been embezzling. Christine has been covering up for him, but she's not going to cover up anymore because she finds out that Dirk and Isabel have been screwing around. Mm-hmm. Isabel loses her mind? 
over this because Christine saw a video of her and Dirk having sex. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Christine ends up murdered. Danny confess. I mean, uh, Isabel confesses. But then she gets out because Dirk gets arrested for it. But then it turns out that Isabel actually did it. Meanwhile, there's Danny, the office lesbian, who's actually <laughs> in love with Isabel as well. And is like, I have all the evidence. I know that you actually killed Christine. So now we're going to be in a sexual relationship. Okay. And, and Isabel's like, no, thank you. But okay. Because you have that video evidence. That is stored and on then, your Nokia telephone. <laughs> that's stored on your Nokia telephone. <laughs> <laughs> 2012 like we knew better right? <laughs> they had razors by that point yeah we knew better uh and then uh that's kind of it but then there's this denouement where it's like isabel kills danny but kind of gets caught in christine's twin that we're not sure if she made up a story about having a twin sister <laughs> Suddenly there is a twin sister, but we don't know if it's a dream because there's a whole chunk of movie that's filmed like a dream sequence and it's implied to be a dream sequence. Because she but keeps realize, waking up. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden it gets stylized. Like it hasn't been stylized. And then all of a sudden it is. And so you're like, okay, this is a dream sequence. And then 15 minutes later, you're like, oh no, I guess it's not a dream sequence. And it's actually happening. But basically it's just like crazy, supposed to be intrigue. There's a it's murder. supposed to be intrigue. <laughs> there's there's a problematic lesbianism. Uh, there's a weird white mask. Christine's got some weird sexual kinks. Oh my god, the Rachel McAdams sex mask. What the fuck? The Rachel McAdams sex mask and drawer full of sex finalia. <laughs> Strap-ons and oil. Strap-ons. See, my theory is that Christine is just a straight-up lesbian and she's using these men for the money and all of this other stuff because why else would she insist on her boyfriend's wearing a mask and a strap on women's hair and like who's wearing that strap oh yeah on she's wearing that it. yeah if she's using it or if he's using yeah. it like yeah either or one way or the other i think christine is just actually a lesbian i think so too is danny the, the problematic lesbian who's like it's not even like a high tension sort of where you can say this is a metaphor for internalized homophobia or anything. It's like Danny is just straight up the cuckoo lesbian. Blackmailing, who, we're girlfriends now. <laughs> we're girlfriends now because I have this incriminating evidence. But, I love you. Turn around and let me kiss your back. Yet before that, every step of the way, she's the sullen lesbian staring down a hallway through the entire film until she that point. Is. So there is an authenticity. There is. <laughs> And she does wear those vests. That's true. <laughs> and she's German, like all lesbians. Yeah, yeah. And so at one point, Christine calls Danny out because she knows that Danny has the hots for Isabel, but she hasn't said anything. And Christine says, you think I don't know what's going on in that dyke brain of yours? I wrote that line down. <laughs> yeah. So did I. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know what's going on in that dyke brain because you have one as well. Uh -huh. But you just won't come out now, will you? Yeah. But by the end of it, it makes no sense. Why does a police officer show up to your apartment to apologize in the middle of the night? Uh, <laughs> is there a twin sister? We don't know. <laughs> there are so 
many questions the, with this the fucking strangling movie. happens danny dies all the evidence gets sent and then it actually turns out that was a dream but then she's in bed and danny is still dead on the side of the bed where she <laughs> I have made it sound like it's less complicated than it actually you is. Have, this movie is not Your red string has gone to great efforts with this. And I mean, and the stylization, like, it's supposed to be stylized because Danny is supposed to be in sort of a, a fugue state, like, much like us, where, because she's been taking all these sleeping pills over and over. But Isabel. Isabel, yeah. Isabel. Isabel, thank you. But then it turns out that Isabel's pills were just sweetener. Like she was, she was, fake. she was eating Tic Tacs and pretending to drug herself. <laughs> but then that doesn't explain why she's having these insane, insane fugue state. Can't distinguish between reality or not. No. Is De Palma eating the Tic Tacs? What is happening? <laughs> you know, I really don't. The, the part that really gets me is like, it's plays pretty straightforward for most of it in terms of style. Yes. And you think. Is this even a De Palma movie? I don't know. And then there is the part where Isabel falls asleep and then the film becomes very stylized, which is why it feels like there's several directors or De Palma only showed up for a couple of days or whatever. And it's why you think it's a dream sequence because she falls asleep and then all of a sudden the lighting, there's like all these like shadows through Venetian blinds and like uh, filters and this, that, and the other thing. And this goes on for a while and it feels like a dream sequence and it's not. And then there's the classic De Palma split screen during Christine's murder sequence. But the split screen, like you think about Carrie and the split screens there and how effective they were. Because they're complementary images. They're In this case, images. they're disconnected, and you're trying to figure out. They're completely disconnected. <laughs> Suppose Isabel has established an alibi for herself by going to a dance, a ballet. And meanwhile, so she's supposed to be at the ballet. Meanwhile, Christine finds a note on her door, her own door, that is like, take a shower and then meet me in the bedroom. She's like, oh my, who's going to meet me in the bedroom? <laughs> so Puts on her sex heels. Puts on her sex heels and very all of her strap on. Uh, so half of the screen is the ballet, and half of it is just like Christine taking a shower. And I guess these are supposed to be concurrent, but it's like, okay, we've established the alibi. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it just the split screen doesn't mean anything. Yeah. it's just split it's just screen. kind of. It's just required in a De Palma film. It's just to film, say, hey, do you remember me? I'm Brian De Palma. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> and not and yeah. not so a computer. I love the like the murder sequence, even though it's only like three oh, seconds. Oh, the CGI throat slash. <laughs> the CGI throat and slash. And the white sex mask. Um, the killer has put on Christine's white sex mask. <laughs> and dressed all in black. And cuts her throat. And I will say, the movie gets way more bonkers after it, but the movie does sorely lack Rachel McAdams. Once I was dead. surprised, because it's it's the halfway point, basically. And I was surprised. Yeah. I thought it was going to be an endless back and forth between them. Sort of like the perfection. And I was so shocked that they offed her so... Like, I could not... I, th- I was waiting for her to come back. Right. Yeah. And then the twin shows up, and you're like, oh my god. Yeah. But then the twin doesn't really show. Like, we don't know if the twin actually exists. Or She's not. just there, but then she isn't. 
And then I was like, wait, did Christine fake her death? Yeah. And yet, Unexpl- the cops were, what? <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weird. You, have, you will have so many questions and it just gets weirder. And it just feels like, it feels like they started making a movie and then had to take a year or two off for budget reasons. And then they filmed another 20 minutes and then took another year. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't feel like a cohesive yeah, because no. there's the first part, then there's the whole dream sequence. It just it yeah. felt like there was there were 17 drafts they needed to get to to connect everything. <laughs> and they did it. Yeah. That's I was like, and is I, it the script? Is it the acting? What is happening? What is the sense of disjointment? It's it's really disjointed. And I think the last like half hour, 20 minutes, like after Christine dies, I think the audience is supposed to question what's reality, you know, and we do, but not in the way that they intended. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like we're wondering what's going on because we just can't fucking tell what's going on. It's not like, oh, it's sometimes it's a dream. See, like is she really hot? It's just kind of like none of it makes any sense. Like for me, it was all captured by when uh, Numi Rapace, who I I love Numi Rapace and everything she does. I fucking love her and her cheekbones. Wow. Um, yeah. For me, it's all <laughs> yeah. really summed up by this. There's a scene between Danny and and Isabel where Isabel says, "Oh, it's basically where she confesses her love for her. She's like, oh no, you're you're confused because like the cycle sort of continues where now it seems like they're working together like Christine and Isabel once were when it's right. when the movie opened and it just looked like a little cute moment. And she confesses, Danny confesses her love for her. And Isabel says, oh no, you're crazy. Uh, you're just tired. Uh, you need some espresso. I'll make you espresso. She literally just walks to next to an espresso machine and then hands her a cup and says, here's your espresso. <laughs> One second after. Here's your espresso. <laughs> she doesn't make it. <laughs> she just said. Maybe, maybe it was cold. She yeah. never said hot. I'll make you a cold espresso. I'll make you a cold it's espresso. Amazing. I wish it was one of those, one of the Keurig machines. And she just handed her a, a pre-made cup. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Yeah. But it's supposed to be like a sexy thriller. Um, thing i mean it's like i mean de palma is reuniting with pino Donaggio. does the score you know who did he did the score for carrie and dress to kill and like a lot of these early de palma films and some of the other great horror films and stuff the score is completely uh, unremarkable ex- it feels like except <laughs> stacy for the wailing saxophone that comes in and then makes the whole movie well, feel like a is this brian de palma's usa late night movie Yes, I feel like I was watching yeah. Silk Stockings with and that saxophone. It's very Silk Stockings. It's very USA Network. That's exactly it. It's like somebody tried to make a De Palma movie that went straight yes. to the USA Network in nineteen nineteen, and it somehow got unearthed in two thousand twelve. <laughs> Thank God it did, because this is the Amanda Woodward lesbian sex murder fantasy. <laughs> wanted to see play out the high stakes intrigue of advertising the other high stakes intrigue of lesbianism where people work jobs allegedly (laughs) yeah it's clear that de palma never shadowed any corporate office (laughs) to to see what people do there are there are 
file folders? <laughs> That's right. That's true. There is a file. Uh, there's a pad folio I think I saw at one point. <laughs> and Christy says I want it on my desk by three o'clock. That's true. What more do you need? And she also Isabel, Isabel shows her her ad. She hands her her laptop, and then she says, "I also have it on stick, so you can take it with you on flight." <laughs> like what? <laughs> also. Isabel, at least in the Wikipedia synopsis, it says that Isabel is an American working at the Berlin firm. Yeah, what the fuck? Where the fuck is Isabel from? Because she has Numi Ramez's accent. You know what? This is also a movie where uh, Christine is imparting in a moment that is meant to be tender, I suppose. Uh, There's a lot of wildly inappropriate work relationships. Oh, this is so like precipice of me too. (laughs) <laughs> that Christine is demanding that Isabel tell her she love her for some reason. Uh, and they're not they're not in a relationship. Literally makes up a makes up a story about a, her twin sister who died and then her family wouldn't tell her she loved her after that. And that's why she needs her immediate second in command to tell her she loves her in her boardroom. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. And when she's telling this story, which is basically like she was riding her bike and almost got hit by a truck, but then her sister pushed her out of the way and she's crying and she says, and then I heard a horrible thunk. Yeah. (laughs) Thunk. Thunk. This is how you describe the traumatic moment of your life. But you know, it's very authentic uh, lesbianism to immediately say I love you and to immediately and inappropriately overshare. Demand. And make everybody and make everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> and then demand being told you're loved back. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. I did some research. They went to Dinah Chore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where he did his shadowing. And shadow some couples, yeah. That's amazing. Some new love. I yeah. have to. Th- but I, th- I think Christine is just a lonely, unsatisfied, and yet very professionally successful lesbo. I agree, and and I have to say for for all of the lesbian lesbians in this film, because this is a movie entirely composed of lesbians who are <laughs> who are all in love with each other, even though they aren't any of them self identified as lesbians, except for right. Danny, arguably. Uh, and they all apparently also have sex with Dirk for some reason. <laughs> for being a lesbian psychosexual erotic thriller, this movie actually has no sex in it except for the sex scene between Dirk and Isabel. Yeah, there is no Which, sex. Like it's like barely any nudity. <laughs> yeah, it's really. That's why I said like it's really restrained. There's like it's it just like needs... kissing. <laughs> yeah. It's just kid like uh, at the even at the end where it's like Danny is trapping Isabel in this. She's like turn around, and so she turns around and she like unzips her shirt and kisses her shoulder. Yeah. That's it. Like let's fucking go there. Like this is this movie. It's not like you're you know, like just fucking go for it, man. Be sleazy. It's like it's it's fake sleaze i was surprised especially from like a director at the end of his career like really trying to hustle it i was really surprised he didn't go because you know like if like say if this was dracula 3d or mother of tears you know it'd be boob 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 lesbian scene lesbian scene lesbian scene you know 
Like, right. it'd be that, like, super unrealistic, rubbing boobs, lesbian sex scene. Yes. Uh, and I was yeah. shocked that there was none of that in this movie. Yeah. There's none of it. And that's the thing, is, like, it thinks it's a sleazy, super psychosexual thriller. And on paper it is. In your eyeballs, it's just... What the fuck? It's De Palma playing dress up as a sleazy psychosexual thriller. Yeah, it's like De Palma's fan fiction for De Palma. Yeah, and yet in the process creating an unheard of and entirely revolutionary new genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so weird. I just love it. I think it's so trashy and fun it is it, it is a, and it was a sheer joy to watch i was so confused and so broken by yeah. it though oh yeah <laughs> you, don't, you don't watch passion so much as passion happens to you yes <laughs> i love it i love it i i just cannot believe what i saw i still have so many questions i don't know what the fuck oh, is up no. with that sister I where did she, those questions will never be answered? Where did she get a perfect cast of her face for her sex mask and the hair attached to it? And how does she clean it? Uh, the what? Why the when she's in the when Numi Rapace is in the jail cell? Like what was it? The the chalk Medusa <laughs> on her wall behind her? Is there some symbolism there? I'm supposed to get. About Medusa and Gorgons and women being captured, turned into stone or decapitated. I don't know. You'll never know, my friend. Who was a director on hand? No, was the, absolutely. Was De Palma there? Did he do the George Lucas school of directing like he did with the prequels where Lucas just sat on a couch in another room like and watched everything <laughs> through a monitor? It's just they printed out what the AI said and then somebody did it. Oh my and God. every all the actors were like, okay. And wow, Numi and Rachel, watching them act for like made for TV was mind-blowing. Yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a wink to Rachel McAdams' performance. That yes. it feels like she knows what's up. Well, Numi? She, yeah. If this was the first thing I had ever seen her in, I would probably never get excited when i saw her name ever i know and i love her yeah she's terrible in this she's terrible they're i mean they're both terrible but rachel mcadams is like there does seem to be a self-awareness like she's coming right off of mean girls i guess de palma saw her in mean girls and then didn't even audition her he just cast her um which makes sense because she's there's very much that dna of that character in this too but yes it's it's just so I, it, it's broken me. It's so hard to comprehend. What is that scene where Rachel McAdams has an office meeting and shows just security, like CC footage of all of her employees and just embarrasses everyone? Like, <laughs> what hostile workplace? Yeah, it is. You know what? That's the real, uh, that's advertising, baby. That's business. Yeah, yeah. It's a dog eat dog world. Doggy dog. I'm just doing what I I'm thought the- you would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at its heart. <laughs> I, I just get you before you get me. At its heart, this is the plot of Working Girl as its impetus. <laughs> and then it goes <laughs> to a completely, 
completely. Thank God for it. New planet. It is colonizing yeah. Mars. It is up there with all the Mormon planets. It's wow. <laughs> yeah, if you are in the mood for something trashy, something that boggles the mind, <laughs> uh, check it out. Just we'll, we will send it over to you via Nokia telephone with our toe. <laughs> As we, we, we may or may not be strangling ourselves due to our, our Tic Tacs we've been eating so much of. Who called that phone? Here's the Who thing. So Danny, Danny has stored all of this incriminating evidence on the Nokia phone. <laughs> and she says that all she has to do to send all of this incriminating evidence to the police is press this one button. It's an untraceable phone she got expressly for this purpose. At the end of the movie, the phone rings. Who's calling? Is it the twin? It's not the detective. It's not the detective. We never find out who's calling because caller ID says unknown. And then somehow, as Danny dies, she, <laughs> with her toe, <laughs> with her toe, she reaches out and presses send on the Nokia phone. <laughs> Who called and why? We don't know. <laughs> Literally not answered. What was happening? <laughs> what continues to happen? Who am I? I have been unmade. I have been undone. As my notes said, what the fuck? I am, and like I said, this is like the, probably the third time I've seen this oh, movie. Wow! And the answers do not like the crystal ball does not become any clearer. Like it's still just full of fog because there's you'll I never know. There's no, is there? Is it De Palma calling? Like there's no. In, is there intention? Did he make this just to? Does this make sense to him? <laughs> what if he did make it? It. You're right. It was a computer. You are absolutely right. It was a computer. This, it, they fed all the De Palma scripts, you know, complete with shot breakdowns and everything, through a computer, and this is what the AI came up with. That's the only reasonable explanation. And yet, for all its attempts to be, like, in your face and this this heady, sleek, sexy, erotic thriller, which it completely fails at being, it's more um, courageous and risk-taking and, and fun to watch than most stuff coming out today, I guess. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's more fun for sure. So <laughs> it's so cringy. There's so many moments full of just cringe where it's like someone is being complete. Usually, Rachel McAdams is being completely inappropriate. Oh my god, so much! It's delightful. I love it. Like her role could only be played by her or Kevin Spacey playing himself. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's no gray area. Her and her ah. her drawer beneath the sink. Oh my god. Yeah, why does she keep all her dildos and stuff under the sink? <laughs> and not at her bedside table? <laughs> not at the bedside table or somewhere close by. Like, oh, go over by the sink. No, the next cabin. No, that's that's where I keep my cereal. My sex mask is in the next drawer. <laughs> under the saran wrap. What did Numi get the sex mask? And how did she have it that long without Rachel McAdams? No, like what? 
What was that ad? What was that ad that took the world by storm? (laughs) Hey, guys, do you see how hot my girlfriend is? (laughs) Let us find out. Hey, you know what? That video... Got 10 million views in five hours, okay? So you it can't, did. you can't, it went viral. You can't argue with those kind of numbers. Oh, I figured out who was calling. Oh? It was Velvet Planner. <laughs> it was absolute. it's canon. It was absolutely Velvet it was Planner. Velvet, yeah, I think you're right. She, Wondering... She was wondering where Danny was in the sex chat room. She's yeah. like, you, have not lo- you haven't logged on yet. Yeah. Where are you? I'm waiting. Waiting. <laughs> My God. <laughs> I love it so much. Everyone should be subjected to it. It is. Yeah. I, 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 do I feel expanded? Uh, do I feel changed? Absolutely. Me too. And then, like I said, it's like the third time I've seen it. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just like, I feel like I have a whole new sense and I'm just trying to live with the, with six senses now, you know? Mm-hmm. I know what goes on in that dyke brain of yours. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a whole lot of split screen and ballet and sex masks. <laughs> Twins that don't exist, but do. Oh God. I love it. Wow. Yay, what a double feature. Passion. What a Passion. F- fucking movie. <laughs> Our smartphone has to be the smartest. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. I feel You are welcome. I feel conflicted. And I'm grateful yeah. for that. You will. <laughs> it happens. It's like a rash. It'll go away. I'm going to have to watch it again. Yeah, I'm going to, I'll just have to put on some head on. I'm just going to have to uh, put myself in a bathtub full of ice for a year. And then, (laughs) and then, and much like the ring virus, I think I just have to make videotapes and just share it with as many people as I can. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. This is your problem now. Yeah. (laughs) You're welcome. And thank you. I can't, honestly, I can't, I'm shocked that these movies worked well together uh, because they are so, so completely disparate and disconnected. Uh, yes. And yet there are some overlaps in very different mm-hmm. ways. Uh, as a conclusion yes. to both Pride Month and LGBTQ Revenge Month, I I can't imagine going out on a higher note. No. Um, and I can't wait to rewatch both of these movies, honestly. They Yeah. For two wow, very different over. reasons. We sit we did it. We did it. It's all over. We survived. Survived. Another year. Maybe this time next year we'll have corporate sponsors for our Pride Month. Yeah. What a what a what a fucking month. Good job. Uh now Stacy, revenge is over. Where where do we go after this onslaught of Pride and then Revenge that one might say has almost driven us to the edge? You know, it's made us a little cuckoo crazy. I would say so. I don't know. My brain will be boiling pretty soon, so <laughs> who knows where we go from here? We'll find out. I'm sh- we'll find out next week. Yeah. We well, we'll probably find out a little bit ahead of that. But maybe, yeah, depending on what the Oracle tells us. These shows are not live. So <laughs> we'll shake up our magic eight balls and see what they say. See what where the goddess takes us. 
see what's inside our dyke brain. <laughs> and in our drawers beneath the sink. I will um, tap my toe on my phone and send you a message. And oh, thank you. Figure it out. I will await for an unknown call. Uh, <laughs> until then, do we have a listener question today, Stacey? We do. We have two questions, actually. Ooh. From Jason. Okay. Al Jason and answer them both not your jason not my jason and there's a there's more than one jason hashtag not my jason hashtag not your jason so uh the first question from jason is what is the best sweater in horror movie history oh now if he had said who is the best sweater in horror movie history (laughs) i might say the killer from slumber party massacre (laughs) but he said what what? your dad joke really got me there (laughs) (laughs) finally (laughs) Uh, so my answer i i dipped a little bit out of the horror horror pool uh but i still Uh, consider i still consider this a horror movie so i'm adding it to horror history because it's it's got very much very it's very much got dna of the genre informing it um so i went to the one of my all-time faves beetlejuice uh because this broke my brain when i realized it but charles deets when he's burning he had which sounds like a sex act but it's not when he's watching birds he's wearing this red sweater right uh later in the film and i did not realize this along with i think the rest of the internet did not realize this until i saw this meme going around when delia is preparing the shrimp cocktail and talking to lydia delia is wearing charles exact same sweater but she is wearing them as a pair of pants I am blown away by her artistry and her commitment to shaking up our understanding, our preconceptions that are handed to us by history and society and repurposing not just a garment, but the act of wearing it. Uh, Well, it's a responsible uh, consumerist act to repurpose. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's friendly to the earth. It, it encourages yeah. uh, re- recycling, reuse. So so I absolutely went with uh, Delia Dietz's sweater pants in Beetlejuice. What I you see. Um, well, you could say, I mean, is the most iconic Freddy Krueger sweater. Obviously Freddy. Obviously Freddy. However, what's the best? I mean, the question is, f- yes, best. I say the best is the sweater worn by Jess as played by Olivia Hussey. Yes. In Black Christmas. Yes. That black sweater with the two big yellow hands crisscrossed over the boobs. It's iconic. It's stylish. I love Jess. I love Black Christmas. I love that sweater. It's the best. This is these are all sound arguments. Thank you very much. I have agree. a good evening. Yeah. <laughs> good night and good luck. I also have to give a shout out to Danny Torrance in The Shining, who wears some amazing sweaters, including the Apollo Rocket sweater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some great sweaters. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm a big fan of Annie's yellow sweater vest in Halloween. Oh, I do love that one. 
I love Annie. I just love anything with Annie, you know? I yeah. love Annie. She's I perfect. Lo- she is absolutely perfect. Nancy Loomis is perfect. I mean, Nancy Keys now, I suppose. But oh. she's always Nancy Loomis to me. Uh, also perfect in the fog. Yeah. I, yeah. She does sarcasm so well. She's so great I, in that role. She's so great in both of those films. Yeah. Love her so much. Wow, sweaters. Good answers. Sweaters. Good question. Yeah. Great and question. Jason's other good question is favorite weird pet in horror. <laughs> I like I, it. There's a little I really racked mm-hmm. my brain with this one. Yeah. Well, especially the weird qualifier. Yeah, like how so I'm like, do we do we dismiss a, a dog or a cat as a weird pet? Or do we just talk about a strange pet? Right. Or is it like an unconventional pet? Like the people those those bananas people down in Florida that that get orangutans and crocodiles and then get their faces ripped off. Right, right, right. Well, that's up to you to make that decision, I suppose, for your answer. I guess it is, huh? So I went with, uh, I went with, um, just cause he's such a cutie, uh, and because I, I really love this movie and I've been thinking about it a lot, um, is I went with Gonk from Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Oh, yeah. I think he absolutely qualifies as a weird pet, even though he's a poodle, uh, because he's also, he's a witch's familiar that takes the shape of a cute little poodle. And then El- good. Yeah. Thank you. Elvira then gives him that wonderful makeover, which I'm I'm hoping was like ASPCA Humane Society approved, <laughs> where she dyes right, his hair, yeah. gives him the mohawk, and makes turns him into little punk rock gonk. So I love gonk. Yes. Shout out to gonk. Um, Shout out to gonk. My side, my my uh, side answer. I want to do a little shout out to uh, Mason Verger's eel. Um, as featured in the TV series Hannibal, which I cannot talk about or I'll spoil it for you. Uh, Does it go in someone's butt? It said I'm not going to spoil anything for you. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for asking that question. Well. I don't believe it does go in a butt, but but now I'm curious. I'm interested in your outlook on eel, Stacey. I just, I don't know. <laughs> I just thought about uh, that scene in the movie, Hannah. Well, yeah, he eats someone's brain when they're at the table. Ray Liotta's brain, you know? So the natural. when I think eel, you know. If they eat a I brain just... in the movie, then naturally in the TV show, the eel goes to the butt. <laughs> hey, everyone. Hey, Brian Fuller, we got a pitch, okay? Remember in the movie when they ate the brain? In this one, the eel goes in a butt. Well, okay. <laughs> and then Christine says it's brilliant. <laughs> and she takes credit for it. She takes credit for it. Yeah. And it gets 10 million views. In five hours. <laughs> well, the fact that you said you didn't want to spoil it. So I was like, all right, maybe someone gets killed with the eel or the eel dies. So it's like, how could someone get killed with an eel? It must go in a hole. <laughs> I guess I could have said mouth. In the book, in that's, the, in, that's a hole. In the book, Mason's uh, lesbian sister is she's sick of him, so she takes the eel and just shoves it on his face, and it's assumed the eel eats his face out of the water and somehow kills him. Okay. It's assumed. So close. Yeah, in the TV show, it's a little bit different, uh, but it goes in his butt. <laughs> it goes in his butt. What can I say? 
called it. We'll get to it when we get to it. And we will get to it. Oh, yeah, we will. Right after we get to Melrose Place. Right after we get to Melrose Place. (laughs) Our Hannibal episodes are being held by Melrose Place. Now that you've got a taste for the cutthroat world of advertising, I think the time is right. There will be no eels and butts until we get to, uh, what was it, Amanda Woodward at the... That's right, at D&D advertising, baby. It's D&D, really? (laughs) D&D. That's right. Good for them. I can't wait. What what what, what's your favorite weird pet? Well, I don't know so much that it's a pet as it is a relationship, and I don't mean sexual. I just mean a relationship. So it's not an eel, is what you're saying. I'm saying it's not a butt. Okay. (laughs) No. But I thought of immediately. This was kind of all I came up with, except for all of the nameless cats of horror films. You know what I mean? Like, let's give a shout out to all the nameless cats who have provided us with shitty jump scares over the years. Yes. You don't even know that someone has a cat until they go near a window and the cat goes without (laughs) opening their mouth as they jump out from behind. Sometimes you don't even see the cat ever. You just hear the cat. Yeah. And he said, oh, scared the shit out of me. (laughs) Whiskers, you scared me. (laughs) You scared me, yeah. So I would just like to give a shout out to all those nameless cats who may or may not exist, much like Christine's twin sister, Clarissa. (laughs) Are they real? Are they portrayed? Were they made by human hands? Does anyone know? No one knows. I I thank you for honoring the cats. Yes, well... They're the unsung heroes of the horror film industry. They truly are. And they have they have been through it. Uh, my answer, however, is the pit full of hungry troglodytes, as seen in the 1981 film, The Pit. Now you say, how are these at all pets? Well... <laughs> There is a child, a sociopathic child, who his demonic teddy bear speaks to him and commands him to feed this pit full of hungry troglodytes that's in the woods near his house. And so anybody that pisses him off or whatever, into the pit they go. The highlight of the film... The highlight of the film is absolutely when... (laughs) (laughs) there's a blind old woman in a wheelchair and he grabs the wheelchair and runs to the pit and dumps her in (laughs) it's so so good (laughs) i love the pit oh it's amazing so but you see that they're not necessarily pets however he is feeding them and they do sort of command him through his demonic teddy bear i'd say that constitutes a weird pet yeah and also not to endorse violence against our friends with disabilities but but Oh man, that sounds It's gl- fucking glorious. Let, <laughs> Let me, me Okay, when you did um Children of the Corn Month on Yes, the corning. You did the corning for Final Girl a couple years ago, like and I follow that shit religiously, but when you got to Children of the Corn 2, which I still have not seen the second one. I've seen several of the others. 
Um, the, <laughs> I have never watched a video more than the sequence of the wheelchair flying through the window. <laughs> Why is it so funny? It's so funny. I'm not trying to be an ableist. Something about the way it's filmed no. and just the weirdness and the wrongness of it. It is so, it is the funniest fucking thing in the world. Yeah. 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 And so this scene in the film is like definitely right up there with Children of the Corn too, Because the kid is just like, eh, like pushing her down the street really fast. And she's like, ah, like waving her hand. <laughs> And then they get to the pit and just dump, just dumps her right oh in. Oh my god! To the monsters waiting below. It's so fucking great. I love it. I need to watch it again. Yeah, they don't make them like that anymore. That's amazing. That's a great answer. Yeah. Wow. Great questions. Good questions, Jason. Great Thank questions. you. Thank you. What a show what a week what a month what a summer of gay this summer of gay very gay summer i'm so happy we got to go over these these films and really got to zero in on specifically some queer films uh yes me too this this month it was great i feel like i feel like you know i'm realizing i always think of the genre as being kind of small um yeah and granted we are definitely the kinds of people that are like well everyone's gay they just don't know it yet <laughs> but Right. I'm shocked at how large the genre actually is and how many films actually are out there that we can talk about. Um, yes. Gives me some hope. And not not even new stuff necessarily. No. I mean, looking back in the archives, look at fucking Hide and Go Shriek, Night Morning, Sleepaway Camp. Yeah. Going back in time, man. It's some better stuff. And yeah. also, you know, learning from those films, seeing like uh, Hide and Go Shriek, Night Morning, how much more, how very shockingly ahead of their time they were in their depictions and in their commentary. Yes. And then, and then following yeah. that and concluding with knife and heart or knife plus heart uh, and seeing that a tribute to a past that could have been, it just right. makes me want to watch even more of some of the old greats and see just all the things we were maybe missing back in the day and bring right. that into the new future, the new queer utopic future we deserve. Yeah. yeah man. We're here. We have a podcast. And a sex mask. And a sex mask. And a drawer full of Tupperware and dildos. And a Nokia telephone. And a Nokia telephone. And you know and... what? We have shirked the master's tools. Shucked? We've shucked them. <laughs> and now chucked them. We've chucked them. And now behold. These are the mistress's tools. Oh, I see. This the strap how, on, you mean? Yeah. This is how we're going to remake America <laughs> in our image. Sex so. masks for all. Sex masks and confusion for everyone. Right. This, that's the future this liberal wants. Wow, for a haunted tome made out of skin, it's so loosely structured, yet informative. I know, right? Uh, is it over? It's glowing and spinning on its own, so I'm gonna guess yes. Ah, oh, oh my god! god. Oh, oh my god. god! Tune in next time for more gay